0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Making It. My name is Mirabelle, and in this episode, I speak to film composer and chair of the Screen Composers Guild of Canada, Adrian Ellis. We talk all about the world of composing for film and television, how the two differ, how he got started in it, what his dream career used to be, and of course, his creative process. To Adrian, a lot of what composing for film means is trying to solve problems and figuring out what the film needs that hasn't already been accomplished by other aspects of filmmaking. So, I thought this was really interesting to hear to hear his perspective on all this and how he approaches these projects. I think he gave a lot of really helpful insights to what it means to make it in this industry, all the logistics and behind the scenes of what composing for a film looks like, and kind of what goes on mentally. Because, not every single thing you make will be what you put out there. It's okay to create things that don't get published or that you think is bad. That's kind of just the way it goes. It's up and down. It varies. Um, And that's okay. So I really enjoyed what he had to say about all of this, and I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Music. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can drop a comment, say hello. I would love to connect with you. And I think that's it. Enjoy the episode. Hello. It's nice. So nice to see you again.
1: You too. Thanks for having me on
0: yeah we met at the vancouver international film festival you were moderating panels and such and and you gave me some tips for podcasting so that was exciting
1: awesome (laughs) hope those worked out
0: yeah it i think so we wrapped up season one of this podcast so so far so good i think i think they're getting better
1: (laughs) congrats no i I checked out a few of them and they're great they're really great actually I i was i was joking uh In our email well not really joking at all actually that i need some tips on how to make my uh, podcast look better because yours look really great
0: thank you yeah so you're you're a film composer i guess do you also work for television as well
1: Yeah, I do film and TV. That's sort of my bread and butter. So it's kind of split between um, like on the TV side, it's TV movies, uh, movie of the week kind of thing. uh, Lots of uh, factual entertainment. I work on shows, um, sort of a broad spectrum of factual entertainment shows, things like Mysteries of the Ancient Dead and... uh, uh, secret Nazi ruins and things like that um, some sports programming and then on the film side it's a lot of independent uh, films oftentimes genre or drama films
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. what it like how does that differ did you say sports programming
1: yeah <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> that sounds very different from everything else
1: yeah, it was, uh, that sort of came about, and it you know it was sort of a blip. It came about in t- sort of early 2010s, I think like 2012, 2013. I was offered by, uh, uh, at that time, CTV is now Bell, uh, to pitch for TSN's um, International Hockey and uh, Football. So Football and TSN, uh-huh. or uh, CFL and TSN. And I got both of those. I won both of those pitches. So we ended up uh, recording with the 60-piece orchestra over in Prague. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because uh, I'm not the biggest sports fan in the world. <laughs> so we were back in some of the mix sessions and the engineer was asking me like, yeah, what do you think of the lineup of the season so far? And I'm like, yeah, that's uh, the one with the 20 of the weird ball with the pointy ends, right? <laughs> yeah, go sports. <laughs> go sports.
0: How do, what does like a, I guess I never really paid attention. I mean, I don't really pay attention to sports either. Mm-hmm. So like, what do you even are they full on pieces for a sports program or are they short like jingle kind of things?
1: Yeah, I guess more like a jingle. It's, it's what they call theme and bumpers. Um, so what ends up happening is you'll get a commission and you sort of develop an overall feel and style of what the piece is going to be. You've got sort of like the instrumentation and that sort of whatever it's going to be that really is the brand flavor that they want. Um, And once you've sort of nailed that down and all the producers and everybody else agrees that that's the direction they want to go, and then you make sort of a main piece. It's sort of like a two and a half, three minute sort of like the big sort of thing that has all the parts. And then you usually break them down into a 60 second, a 30 second, a 15 and a five second, and sometimes even two or three second uh, bumpers, um, which then are get get used in all sorts of different um, situations. And you usually do variations on those. So you do you have a huge, uh, big shopping list of different things you're gonna do. Uh, And I've done that for other shows like uh, Daily Planet when that was still on the air, Canada AM when that was still on the air. Uh, And it's all sort of the same thing. And a lot of the sort of if I'm asked to do like a game show, I've done a couple of game shows um, and some reality shows as well. That's usually what it'll be. It'll be a package, theme and bumpers. So you get the main themes, usually a credit bed for the end. And then the theme or the bumpers and the hits and the stings or whatever will take you in and out of commercial. So uh-huh. you're usually not writing anything that's under the sports program proper. You usually have like a voiceover bed, which is like when the announcers come on and they're like talking about the game in the beginning and who's playing and what the stats are, and sort of like a few things for the audience to, or mm-hmm. the the fans to know uh, and then it's obviously there's no there's no scoring the actual action on screen yeah <laughs> that would be uh that would be an interesting challenge doing live uh sports, pro, uh, sports right. scoring
0: <laughs> that could get pretty intense yeah that'd be fun. <laughs> Um, How did you get started with film scoring?
1: So, um, yeah, I kind of came around the long way. I didn't really start getting into this career until I was 27. So quite late. I mean, by comparison to a lot of other people, my original trajectory didn't really have anything to do with film. Uh, In fact, it didn't even have to do with music. Uh, I was actually interested in becoming a visual artist. I wanted to be like an illustrator back when that was more of a thing. So I went to post-secondary for fine art. And that's actually what you found me doing most of the time when I was growing up was painting and drawing. Oh, wow. um, but I grew up in a musical family. Um, my parents moved ger- to Germany just after I was born. I was born in the prairies. My parents are all from sort of Saskatchewan. And uh, so I, was grew, I grew up, around my parents are both classical musicians. My dad played French horn in the orchestra there. Uh, so I grew up around classical music. And I, I thought about this only recently where I realized that like a lot of my Imagine imaginative time, like time just spent playing on my own would be to music. And I'd have specific classical pieces that I would sort of act out the different movements and the different parts. And now that I think about it, I was like, that's, I think, sort of the first sort of seed of this idea of like storytelling and music being combined and, um, you know, all those sort of things coming together. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, when I was, after I went to post-secondary, I sort of got into a band with a a friend of mine at the time and we ended up moving out to Vancouver. We were in Edmonton originally, uh, and then eventually to Toronto. And after that band broke up, uh, I sort of left thinking like what I'm going to do now. Uh, so I went back to that original thing. I was going to be a graphic designer uh sort of the more practical side, I guess, of the illustration part. I don't know why I just didn't decide to go into illustration, but graphic design mm-hmm. was sort of a thing at that point where mm-hmm. it sort of seemed like you get a freelance career started. And I started doing that. I did a few professional gigs and I absolutely hated it. I just <laughs> hated it. Oh no. Which is crazy, right? Because I think mm-hmm. about this now and there's like so many analogs. There's so many things that are like uh like you know the client relationship and um you know scoring to picture in terms of like uh you know editing or having to like follow a certain brief or there's all these things that are very similar but for some reason when it was graphical it just drove me crazy interesting so yeah and and i was sort of like sitting around at this uh, this job that i had at the time i was working at ryerson university i was just like okay i need to get another career going and i think it was just like doing some research online and thinking like what are different careers for musicians it was so stupid right (laughs) and then i found this book by jeff rona who's um composer down in los angeles has done a lot of uh well he used to do a lot more work in film and tv and then uh, he wrote this book called the real world and that was sort of like a description of like you know the job of a film composer and a Mm. tv composer and i was like whoa this is actually combines all of the things that i'm really interested in Uh, the storytelling the visual aspect of it critical thinking and of course music um So yeah, that's that was around 2004, and at that point, I knew some people in the industry because I was in a band. So I knew some people who did, uh, who were directors, did uh, music videos. So I just called up everyone I knew, and I said, "Okay, this is what I'm doing now, <laughs> trying to put together a reel." And I just started scoring everything I could get my hands on. I put up notices around Ryerson for student films and filmmakers, and said, "I'll just, I'll do it for free. I'll just score your film." And I did that for years and years, um, and eventually got. Uh, into uh, the Screen Composers Guild in 2007 and did a six-week mentorship with a gentleman named Don Laquan. And that sort of opened up my eyes to the real potential um, of being a professional musician and a professional composer and what was actually possible. Um, And it's just like, it's one of those things when you talk to people who've done it, they can kind of go, okay, it is possible. And just even hearing, knowing someone, and these are the steps they took, and here's how they got, and here's, you know, uh, stupid things like how much money they made and all those kinds of things where you're like, okay, this is actually a real thing. It's not just, you know, a a dream. Um, Yeah, and that was it. And it was sort of like, uh, for seven years, you know, I I sort of just was in a grind of of working a day job and scoring at night Um, and just doing student films, independent films uh, for little or no money often. Um, Until I finally got a chance to pitch on something by pure luck and a very kind gentleman who was a a mix engineer at CTV put my name in the hat uh, for Daily Planet. And I ended up getting that gig and that was sort of the first thing that allowed me to sort of see a path where I was like, okay, I've got this one thing. It's got a certain amount of back-end royalties coming in and I know I only have to make, you know, I think it was like $750 a month. Mm-hmm. uh and i was like okay i can do this that was that was like a it was like a clear path i could see it i was like if you can't make 750 bucks a, a month i think you don't deserve to be a freelance composer <laughs> yeah
0: yeah wow that's awesome that is I the thing that you said about seeing other people or having a mentor and then you know like seeing how this is a real thing a real job that you could do mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's like this is this conversation right now is like, <laughs> that's it.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's kind of funny how things work out, huh? Like you look back and it's like, oh well, as a kid, you had all all these factors already played into, I guess, what you're actually doing now for your career. Yeah. And you mentioned the uh, Screen Composers Guild, which yeah. you're now vice president of, right?
1: Uh, actually, just recently, th- we had a, n- a new election in September, and I'm now the chair of the, oh, of the well, guild. Oh, so congrats. Little,
0: <laughs> thanks. <laughs> it's a little <laughs>
1: musical chair, so, yeah.
0: Quite literally.
1: Yes, string
0: composers. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about the SEGC?
1: Yeah, so the SCGC is uh, National Association of uh, Professional Screen Composers. We represent all uh, Canadian composers in English-speaking Canada anyways. Uh, Quebec has its own for French-speaking composers. And it was started in 1980 because basically they saw that there was this, um, you know, a necessity to sort of have composers be able to talk to each other and understand the landscape at that point because there's a lot of stuff coming up Um, mostly in ads and television that was coming up from New York and and other places. So there was a lot of work to be done at that time, but there wasn't a lot of, you know, sort of uh, there wasn't like an industry really at that time. It wasn't like it, it is now in L.A. where, you know, there's sort of more of a standard kind of thing that's going on. Um, and it started almost more like a social club in the beginning and then became an art, a, more of a professional industrial organization later on that's certified under the uh, status of the Artist Act in Canada. So we can um, do things like if we ever wanted to, we could uh, negotiate a, you know, a, an agreement for composers in Canada. But primarily, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible community of professional composers. And one of the great things that I love about being a composer in Canada Uh, is that there's really not a sense of competition up here. It's more like a camaraderie. Like everybody knows they're sort of in it together and we share tips and tricks and war stories. And, you know, in general, just try to encourage each other and um, yeah, just prop each other up. Because, you know, what often happens is you might not get a gig, but you'll see who gets the gig and you'll be like, oh, that's my buddy so-and-so. And and I'm Mm. glad they got it at least, you know. it's There isn't this sort of like knives behind the back kind of attitude that in some other places where it's... I mean, it's still competitive, right? It's a hugely competitive market, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice, it's nice at least that that's, that's what it is. So a lot of the stuff that we do is around community building. Um, we interact obviously with the uh, festivals as you saw with VIF and we do it with TIFF as well. Um, and really we're just here to promote the value and um, rights and music of composers in English speaking Canada.
0: That's awesome. And you started a podcast with SCGC, <laughs> Yeah, How'd that come a, about?
1: Uh, it was a kind of a pandemic project. Um, oh yeah. So we every three years we have to do a a strategic plan for the for the guild, uh, which is basically laying out the next three years of what we intend to do, and that's primarily so that we can get funding. One of the things that they were talking about was like, you know, how do you actually uh, use your communications to do what you say you want to do, which is promote the value and music and rights of composers. And there were some ideas in there that, you know, I can't actually remember exactly what they were, but um, the idea of a podcast sort of came up, was loosely discussed. And that was something that was always really interesting to me. Um, I love having conversations with creative people of all stripes. Um, I just like having conversations with anyone who will talk to me um, (laughs) because I think almost everyone has a fascinating story to tell and sort of a perspective on things that, uh, you know, if you bring it out, first of all, it's so enlightening and, and kind of fascinating. It's kind of like Humans of New York. Um, Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, there's so much to learn from people. And I thought, well, okay, we've got this pandemic. Suddenly we're not traveling anymore. We're not spending money on all these other things that we normally had. So we've got this sort of like budget, not overrun, but we've got money that we can spend. And so I just pitched it. I said, look, this is what I'm interested in doing. Um, This is how I want to do it. I want to talk to composers. I want it to be long form, like, you know, hour plus just chatting about this and that and i'll produce and host it and that's sort of how it came about they sort of said okay here's some money and uh go forth and prosper (laughs) (laughs) so i just started calling up people that i knew and said hey you want to try out this crazy podcast idea and that's how it all started
0: that's really cool you've spoken to a lot of really awesome people yeah (laughs) so back to like composing what would you say is like most important for a demo reel
1: What's most important? Wow. Well, I mean, obviously, and I think this, uh, this is sort of one of those funny things, you know, back in the day, and I'd say back in the day was like, let's say 10 to 15 years plus. Um, one of the things that I would say, well, you want it to be high quality, like broadcast quality. Mm. Um, even the word, I would say this one, even the word demo doesn't, is, is sort of an old term because demo used to mean here's something rough I put together to give you a sense of what's possible, but it's not supposed to be the finished product. Today, if you look at anyone's website or you see anything that people send out, even if you're asked like on an overnight kind of basis by an ad company, which happens all the time, like, hey, we need this new thing for Tim Hortons. Can you send us something in this style? And, you know, composers I know will literally stay up overnight and provide these like 30 second fully produced, fully Mm -hmm. professional live instrumentation tracks. So demo doesn't really exist anymore, I don't think. like People expect a finished sounding product or very close to it. So that's probably the first thing is that when when the word demo gets used, it really just means, uh, well, I don't even know why they use the term, just send me the best music you can possibly make. So that's the first thing. It's got to be the best music you can possibly make, preferably broadcast quality. Um, But I would say... You know, if you're promoting yourself just as a, as a professional, like you've, you've got your stuff on a website or you're just you're not pitching for something specific, uh, I would say the most important thing is to just keep on working and trying to project your voice, your unique perspective as an artist. You I mean, I think part of it in, in certainly in Canada and other places, like even if you're living not in Los Angeles and not in New York, uh, where there's a hub. You're probably going to be expected to do like a lot of different things and different styles. But I mean, if you think about why you're attracted to anything else, like whether it's, you know, a a type of person or, uh, you know, a a computer company or, you know, a clothing company, there's something about a stake in the ground, right? They say, I am about this and I'm not about that. Right? You choose people based on having similar values and similar kind of ideas about life or people that you find interesting. And there's a consistency to that, right? So I think that when you're putting together your demo reel for your website, let's say to to show other people what you can do, having a sense of your voice, in addition to, you know, here's the breadth of what I can do. If there's some kind of thing that they can hold on to and it doesn't just sound generic, that's, I think, probably the best thing you can do in terms of the pure demo itself.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, like, what are your thoughts on being kind of a jack of all trades then versus having one specific kind of niche sound
1: yeah um <laughs> man this is this is a tough one, not because I don't have potential answers it's that, that all answers and all advice can kind of be wrong if yeah. it's not if it's not for the right person, so I mean it really depends on a number of things first of all, I'd say like if you if you there is this really amazing like career you can have as a jack of all trades if you really are just curious and are interested in writing as many different styles of music if someone calls you up and goes look i need a justin bieber type track but i need it to be with like have bazooki in it or something crazy like that or just like a now and then tomorrow you'll be doing like your best hack like attack at haydn um if that is what interests you and you you feel you could sustain that kind of work for a really long time then there's a lot of work to be had, I think if you can do that at a really high level. But I mean if you look at most career composers who are known, they have a style they have a, mm-hmm. a something that you would go to them for. Um, and while they can do a lot of different things, that's sort of the that's the foremost kind of thing that they project, right? It's like, I, I do this. This is the main thing I do. Yeah, you're not going to go to Trent Reznor for John Williams and vice versa. Um, so that's, that's one sort of take on it. But I think that ultimately, when you start out uh, in, in a career, in any career, really, um, I, I, I wish I could attribute this quote. I can't remember who said it, but they, the, basically the idea was when you start out, you say yes to everything. And then eventually you get to a point where you can say no, and then you should say it as often as you can. Um, Because really what that is, is about refining who you are as an artist or refining what you want to do. And then also saying no to all the stuff that you don't like or that doesn't fit with what you do. So that's a big part of it too. In the beginning, you're probably going to say yes to all sorts of stuff and kind of de facto become a jack of all trades if you can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, you know, there's also nothing wrong with leaning into what you do and and being really good at that. Because, I mean, let's say for instance, you took a kind of, let's say just because I mentioned them and they're sort of a good... uh, A good touchstone is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. They have, I mean, you put them into sort of like an electronic ambient textural kind of camp. But within that, they do a lot of different things, right? So it's not like they're just doing one thing and it all sounds the same. It's that's their primal primary approach and everything kind of flows out of that. So it's not like, oh, I I can't ever do anything else, or I can't, you know, I can't say yes, or I have to say no to every other gig that comes along. I mean, again, it's a it's a tricky thing. It's there, there's another part of it where you know, so much of this career is about what you can't control. Um, you can control how much time you spend learning and being curious and improving your music. You can you can control uh, how much time and effort you put into networking and meeting people and communicating really well. You can uh, you have control over what kind of marketing materials you put out or how you interact you know, and communicate on social media and stuff like that. But ultimately, most of your career is out of your control. How people see you really and um what opportunities are gonna come your way. I mean, you can do your best to try and guide the ship somewhat, but I've been looking for kind of like, you know, some sort of a, um, a matrix to feed stuff through so I can I can kind of anticipate, like maybe these things will turn out. It's mm-hmm. honestly, it's, it's really, uh, luck and randomness has a lot to do with it. So mm-hmm. it turns out that having a career really is a set of circumstances and you're just kind of like, trying to sort of nudge things in one direction like i like this more i don't want this or you know i'm definitely not going to do that um but it's you know you don't sit there and, and sort of strategize and go well, this is how it's going to go and i'm going to do this and that and that and it's going to end up like this because it's just not going to <laughs> yeah
0: i mean ideal. that would be nice if it mm-hmm. did
1: <laughs> there's a there's a lot of value in the idea of letting go in this career for sure mm-hmm. in any kind of creative field i think because there's so much that's out of your control
0: Yeah, that's a good reminder because I mean, sometimes I have ideas of what I would like to do and what Mm -hmm. I hope to accomplish, Yeah, but it gets kind of frustrating if it, if like you're so set on this thing and it doesn't work out the way that you want it to. Right. Yeah. So how do you get started with your compositions mostly? Like what is your process, I guess?
1: Uh, If we're talking about stuff for film and TV, which is, you know, 99.999% of what I do, um, it really is first and foremost about story. Um, and that means it's about that vision that the story is attached to, which is a vision of usually one person or a few people. And so the first thing I want to do and that I'm super curious about is why did you want to make this? So I want to talk to the filmmaker. I want to talk to the, you know, the showrunner, whoever else is the person that is you know, the sort of head visionary of this thing. And get inside their head, like, what made you curious about this? Why, did you, why are you compelled to do what it takes to make something like this? I mean, it's such a difficult thing to make anything. Um, and I just want to know, like, why was this the path you went down? And to sort of, you know, start to uh, get a sense of that and also build that relationship so that, you know, there's a kind of mutual trust that is established as you're sort of going along. Um, Sometimes, a lot of the times, I would say, the people that I'm working with are, are already friends because I've worked with them before on multiple other projects, so there's a kind of understanding and trust that's built in. Uh, but yeah, that's the first thing for, first and foremost, it's just like, it's a, like a getting to know you. It's that first establishing thing. Like, what is it about this? Because there's, there's a little, there are seeds in so many different things just from like talking to a person, getting a sense of who they are and what they believe in, what their, the values are, uh, what drives them, you know, mm-hmm. what makes them curious? What, what, what makes them hate? What makes them love? Mm-hmm. Um, those things start to like, you know, all, all things spark a kind of like creativity in you and you need to sort of uh, hook onto those things. And in order to make what you respond to all of those things with relevant, it has to be based on those things. So I'm trying to, it's a very empathetic process. So that's the first step. And then the second step is what's the story about? Um, what are the different perspectives in this story? Where, what is the arc of the whole story? Where, where's the beginning, the middle and the end? um what is who is the hero of this story what is their journey what are they overcoming what are they striving for what do they want what are their values um what is this film trying to say what do you want the audience to understand what do you want them to feel and then as we go along that process um it's about you know figuring out what music's role in that is like um what do you want music to do that isn't being done by any other element in the film i always say like if everything else is working, if the acting, the dialogue, the screenwriting, the, the picture, the editing, the pacing, the lighting, the stage design, the costuming, if all that's all working well, oftentimes you don't need music. What you need music to do, hopefully it isn't as a crutch, like something's not working and this is broken, you need to help us. It's well, you know, without music, we don't actually know the real story here. If there's some subtext or an undercurrent or something that's not being said overtly, if there's a conversation where the words being spoken mean one thing, but the actual meaning of the scene is something else. And we need to be able to, you know, gently tease that that might be the case without giving things away that's i think one thing and then another thing that i think music does uh, you know really well and is really one of its uh, sort of significant contributions is that if uh, you know there's this kind of like thing about smell like as a sense memory when you have a it's such a powerful thing. you can you can be walking down the street and smell a smell. it's a perfume or a food or something, and instantly be transported somewhere else and be like, "Wow, like I'm seven years old again and I'm in my mom's kitchen or like something like that. And music has a similar thing where you can hear a tune that was like from a really specific time in your life. And you'll hear it again and it'll put you in that emotional state. So, as a screen composer, I really borrow. I lean on that uh, that power of music to do that a lot, which is to, um, you know, to be able to say in act one, this thing happened. I'm going to give that a theme or a very strong musical motif. Uh, It's like a signifier, a symbol of that thing. And then even if nothing in the scene in act three has to do with that, but we want to say we're coming up to some sort of like resolution of this idea or a, or a big revolution of the idea or something else. I can harken back to that in that subconscious memory of that tune will connect those ideas and those feelings and emotions together so that's a large part of what i'm trying to understand and then we watch the film together in what's called a spotting session and then we really just it's the nitty-gritty of saying music in here i think right at this point and then probably out somewhere here i don't want any music here or i'll say things like i don't think there should be music here they'll ask me for it, and i say i think this is working i don't think we want to spoil this with having something additional um, so that's a really like very pra- practical kind of aspect of it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's that's a, that whole process is days, uh, if not weeks. And then I go home uh, or I'm in the studio and I'm just I literally spend about three days writing, uh, putting down words and putting together a big document that sort of puts all the timings and everything else and then just written like what's happening in the scene. What are the, what's the audience like my secret sort of guide to what's going on. I'm I'm still haven't written a single note. I haven't put played a single melody. I haven't written a chord progression. And only once I've got that, do I go, okay, now I need to find my way and I watch the film. And there's something, usually there's one scene sort of a master scene that I'll attack first. And I'll go, okay, I need a character theme or I need this. And I'll I'll work on some themes. I'll work on some usually big idea themes, like themes for, uh, well, themes for themes, right? Like the theme of this movie is, and then I'll write a theme for that. Or the, maybe there's like three different like literary themes in the movie. So that's a very long answer to the simple question of how do you start writing? But that is, to me, that is the process for myself. And because mm. once I'm there, once I've got all of that done, the music comes easily. It's because it's so, it's already a part of the, it's like a I, I coded into a genetic kind of sequence for myself. It's like completely ingrained. I know what's going to work. And when I do something, I'm like, this is this is the movie speaking through the music now. And when I then give that over to the uh, director or the showrunner, they go, I think this is it. M- like, you know, most of the time it hits because I've done all that work, because we've had that trust, because I really, really know what they're trying to say. A lot of composers I know are very, um, and this is not a knock. This is like everyone has their own process, but they're very uh process driven they need to just start like throwing ideas down just did, 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 did. and i don't work like that i really like words like i like lots of words to guide what the music's going to do and i like sort of having that process in place of the one i am writing then i just sit down and watch this and i'm like this this chord and it's usually like one of the first if not the first thir- or like the first second or third idea for anything is usually the one yeah. um because I've done all that work. So that's usually what it is. And that process is very simple. I just sit and I watch the scene and I go, okay, stop the scene, sort of think for a second, just kind of feel like, what does that feel like? And then I put, I usually start with chords, this Mm -hmm. chord, and I think they want to go there. And, and it's just like, it's, it's, you know, then it's the sort of like that internalized kind of like, um, sense you have about chords and scales and melodies and progressions and things that sort of like, and you will call up a certain emotion and that's what you're trying to search for. But honestly, that whole pre thing is the most important part for me, <laughs>
0: yeah, that's really cool, though. At what point did you do you think that you figured out this process, like in your career? When did you start incorporating that into your writing
1: i, I If you can't tell I'm a big talker, I love to talk <laughs> love it <laughs> uh, but I love to talk with people about ideas, and I think that's always been the thing I've loved about filmmaking um the thing that I didn't really love about being in a band, which was like, you write the songs, which I loved, you record the songs, which I really loved, like that whole being in the studio. But once that was done, then you just perform the songs and the conversation was over. And also you sort of just had a catalog of like, however many songs and you just perform them over and over and over again. What I love about filmmaking is you're always attacking a new problem. You're always coming up with new challenges. You're always being tested in some way. So I think that kind of initial process was there from the very beginning, because it was natural for me to want to go, well, what is this about? Like, what are you trying to say? How does this work? You know, in the beginning, it's just sloppy and you're trying anything and you're just kind of awful at it. Um, But hopefully you're coming up with people who are also not the greatest at the other stuff that they're taking care of. So you're learning and growing together, which is really the greatest way to do it. Um, yeah, so I think the com- like the word I've always been, you know, very much into uh reading and uh reading novels and reading literature and uh analysis uh certainly like I'm really big into analysis. That I learned actually the analysis piece I learned uh when I was in post secondary doing fine art cuz I had some, you know, literature classes and we were asked to sort of like take apart and analyze um classic literature and i found it like Mm -hmm. oh wow this like there's an underlying structure to all this stuff and a deeper meaning that you can consistently tease out if you have the you know you sort of know the formula to a certain extent or you understand how these things are normally structured and that sort of like sparked this like um like this desire in me to always sort of be seeking that i'm like oh what Mm -hmm. does it mean like and, and it's not like Sometimes it's stuff that the filmmaker didn't even intend or didn't realize was in it. I'm just like, yeah, it's really cool how this thing, it it suggests this and they're like, yeah, yeah, totally. That's exactly (laughs) what I meant. (laughs) But that's the fun part about it. But yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think I've definitely gotten better at it over the years, but I think that curiosity and the, and the desire to just have conversations about stuff has always been there.
0: Mm, Yeah. Love that. Do you analyze a lot of music then?
1: Uh, only when i'm trying to uh emulate something very specific so if i'm doing Mm -hmm. like a commission and they're saying well we want it to be like this and i've never done music like that Mm -hmm. then i'll do some analysis or if there's a piece that i'm just like how did they do that what is going on you know it's just like trying to like understand a complex piece of clockwork and you're just Mm -hmm. you can't uh you're just so compelled by it um, and I oftentimes fail, uh, to, to fully, uh, tease that out. So yeah, I don't, I actually don't, it's, it's a very weird thing. I find there's a, there's a very separate, so there's a separate thing in my brain that happens when I'm doing this. There's the extremely analytical, extremely like taking apart the things and looking at the constituent elements and then also seeing the body as a whole and seeing the beauty of it working together as a story and as an emotional, uh, empathetic communicative piece, And then there's a completely intuitive process of making the music that comes out of that. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the only there, you know, and I'm always trying to work at that. Like, okay, you can't go back to the same old, same old, cause you you need to go back to what you always do and you have to push yourself to get out of those modes and try different things and trick yourself into doing, going into deeper depths. And then, so sometimes analysis is part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's that the oddly enough, the music making part of it is often extremely intuitive.
0: Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say like then do you when you're composing do you tend to think about the theory of like like chords and stuff like oh maybe a diminished chord or like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. <laughs>
1: So, no, absolutely not. And I thought Mm -hmm. for a long time that uh, to be a legit composer meant to think like that, and (laughs) that there was always an intention and a very strict kind of rigor behind the best pieces that were ever made. And I I don't believe that anymore. I think that a lot of uh, stuff that is made is literally this process of just intuiting stuff. Mm -hmm. And that really, theory came out of um, a reverse engineering of that of going yeah. like why does this work this works but why um, that said uh, it is definitely useful to have some knowledge of theory especially you know, chords and scales and understanding different uh, chord progressions and different relationships between chords is super helpful mm-hmm. because a it can get you out of a corner that you've painted yourself in um, and if you want your music to be harmonically rich and be able to go a lot of different places, you know, um, to understand how the circle of fifth works, or to understand like mediant relationships, and to understand like if I'm here, how do I modulate over there, or what is the what is the device I can use to make the feel like we're raising everything up, or you know, things mm-hmm. like you know, good good uh, voice leading is really important for writing music that just sounds right and doesn't sound clunky, you know. So it's definitely useful, but I think what it is is you. Or at least this is what I've done. I've figured out ways of internalizing it in in a way that isn't about the academic kind of theory of it. So I'm not thinking about it, but I'm just, I've figured out a way sort of like ingest it and osmotically or osmotically kind of just (laughs) take it in and go, okay, this is what it feels like when this is right. And I've got my Mm -hmm. own weird little, you know, Adrianisms that I do that sort of is it is an expression of that theory coming out, but it's not that I'm like consciously thinking about it as I'm writing.
0: Yeah, I think uh, sitting in theory class in like first year, second year, I was just very because I I love composing and like, but sitting in theory class, and they're telling you all these rules about how to compose, basically, I got really frustrated because I was like, well, why can't we do parallel fifths, (laughs) stuff like that. (laughs) But like, it makes sense, though, that the theory came from like, you're just analyzing the works of Beethoven or Mozart and like, that's where the theory comes from. Yeah. It sounds good, and this is what they did,
1: yeah. and so
0: we're learning about it so like that it makes sense, but like when I was in it, I was just very much like. Well, why, I don't get why we have, why are there, why are there rules? <laughs>
1: well, there's, you know, rules is the wrong word. Theory is the right. It's just a theory. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not the law. <laughs> you can write parallel fifths. And in fact, the only reason why you wouldn't is if you're writing for choir, because the crossing of the voices sounds <laughs> weird sometimes. I mean, that's the only thing they said. It's not like, don't ever do it. They just said, hey, and they should have explained it better. Or Maybe there is a good explanation, but it's just like, if you want to get this result try it this way. It it works like nine out of ten times. Um <laughs> otherwise you're probably gonna be having a very painful road to things that are not quite as successful. But there's no reason why you can't do it other ways. I mean people mm-hmm. write all sorts of crazy stuff that breaks quote unquote the rules of theory and it sounds great. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and so why not? I mean really the way I look at it is like learn the and you know theory I've never actually f- taken formal theory beyond like uh, grade twelve RCM, and it's really just like this is an interval, this is a half note, this is a dotted half, like all these kind of like it's like you're seeing uh, what, do you, what do you call it like a dissection, and you're only seeing part of the body, and they mm-hmm. never they never tell you like well here's a tendon, well what does a tendon do? Well it connects tissue and it h- helps hold the body together. Well, okay, but I don't understand like if I'm going to build a human, what do I where do I put this? Literally, I just got this floppy ten, and I don't know what to do with it. it, Like, it's it's sort of disconnected, right? Yeah. Like some of the best experiences I had, where I like learned theory. We're literally just stumbling upon somebody on a YouTube video going, yeah, you can use the octatonic scale like this, like you build triads mm-hmm. and then you go, bah, bah, bah. I'm like, what the oh my God, wait, I <laughs> like play it at 25% speed and go, okay, oh my God. And then you do it and you go, oh, okay, I get it. Like a, at a deeper level, you like take it in, right?
0: Sometimes learning on your own, if you have that curiosity, it sometimes is better than like sitting in a lecture hall <laughs> <laughs> so do you begin your compositions on piano or do you do you just score things by writing the music notated
1: uh almost never by notation um mm-hmm. because that to me feels like uh one step removed from the thing that i feel i could do it it would be very clunky and very awkward um mm-hmm. because that's just not the way i was brought up in music. I was brought up very by ear because there was always music in my family as my parents were constantly practicing. So I heard a lot of music. I was always around music. So it's, it's very in me, I think. Um, and it, there's no, I I very rarely suffer from any kind of writer's block or anything where I'm like, I don't know what to do. And usually if I don't know what to do, it means Go back to the writing you did. Go back to the notes you took and figure out what the story is because that will tell you what to do. Um, but in terms of like the nitty gritty of what I start, it really depends on the project. So, for instance, like on this last uh, TV movie that I did, I mean, it's very, uh, it's a romance adventure. And so it's very, you know, romantic orchestra-ish. Mm-hmm. which and if that's the case i'm typically starting on strings because that's that's sort of like the meat and potatoes that's what we are going to hear that's going to be the main element through most things and i just find like you know four-part uh, writing and strings um just on the keyboard is sort of like that's going to be my way i'm going to find that sort of like texture in the and the uh the harmonic language that i want to hear uh mm-hmm. it might be piano it could be starting on piano for something like that as well uh and then another film i did which was sort of a genre horror comedy thriller um we were talking uh, in the original stages. We were talking about how great, how much we love um, Tapia Devere, who did the music for The White Lotus. And he's got a very interesting textural, abstract uh, kind of approach. And Daniel Pemberton does this too, which is a very sort of like sound designy, uh, you know, aleatoric just like weird sounds kind of way of going about things. So because that was going to be sort of the leading uh, musical force in that, uh, as opposed to like strictly just like chords and melody, um, I just started with a bunch of uh, experiments, like sonic experiments, running things through processing, recording weird instruments, making weird noises, coming up with weird like... uh, ideas for how sound could be made and what what could be an instrument and that that in some more experimental stuff where the music is meant to be more abstract that's usually the place that i'll start and then you know with the emotional qualities and i'll go back to strings or piano and then even though i'm a guitar player i, I rarely reach for the guitar to score but yeah that's something i've been thinking about lately is is uh, actually getting into that again and using the guitar. Um, I used the guitar in the last sort of genre film that it was more like an 80s uh, retro kind of thing. But I'd like to use the guitar more as a scoring instrument, more like a string section or, or something like that.
0: Oh, that'd be cool. What is the most abstract instrument or unconventional instrument that you've used? <laughs>
1: uh, well, it would probably be the uh, a circular saw. I think. <laughs> or a belt sander, or uh, yeah, any and I did a whole movie which was basically made of sounds of power tools, yeah, and, and other sort of things I had laying around in the basement. Uh, but yeah, the, the the power tool instruments are probably the strangest, yeah, for sure, yeah.
0: Did you record those sounds yourself and yeah. all that? Yeah, yeah. What was that process like? Did you just do like a hundred different takes or something?
1: So that. That's actually in a a short film called Timebox. And um, if people want to check it out, you can see that film at the end of a documentary that the filmmaker of that film made uh, that's now on Amazon and Tubi. So if you have an Amazon Prime membership, you can watch it for free. And I think Tubi is ad-supported, so you can see it there. It's called The Music of Madness. Um, And it basically, you'll see the whole process of what I did. So what I said to my friend Tate Young, who directed Timebox and a bunch of other stuff that I've worked on him with, uh, he came to me one day and said, hey, we've got, I got this crazy film. Me and a bunch of friends just ran around in the woods in Alberta and, and, and shot this and wrote and shot this crazy time travel movie um, where we basically like are these dudes that replicate ourselves and then hunt each other for fun and then replicate again. Nah, 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 and I said, that sounds insane. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, look, we can just pay you you know, credit card, thousand bucks. I said, don't worry about it. Like, I'm not going to take your money for that. Cause this is no budget. No, we don't have any funding or anything like that. I said, but here's what I want. Um, here's my idea for this. I I'd like to try and do a movie entirely with just found sound. No, nothing out of the box, nothing I've purchased, no traditional instruments played in traditional ways. So if you're cool with that and you're willing to bring some camera gear over and just do like a little tiny, like two minute kind of like, uh, things for me to do a promotional thing with, then you've got a deal. And he said, Cool so we ended up filming like over three days while I just went and smashed things and made weird sounds in the basement and tried to destroy my piano in various strange ways but yeah I mean that so that whole thing if you want to see it it's called the music of madness again it's on Amazon Prime and Tubi and uh, that whole thing is basically just me putting myself in a very precarious situation in front of my director <laughs> going I think this might work but I don't know um, and yeah it's exactly what you describe I mean it's just like okay this makes noise uh, that could make a noise and then thinking about like how sound is created right so you can you can strike things um, you can uh, you know there's certain things that you can use to like vibrate things or or you can drag something across something else either like a a rubber mallet on a piece of metal or you can bow it with a cello bow Um, you can resonate things with other sounds you can re-amplify things you know there's a thousand different things and then you just sort of look around anything that has any kind of resonant potential you go okay let's try it uh, or things that make noise on their own, like the uh, power tools. Because I just was really interested in finding like sounds that were super ugly and nasty, just like the film was, right? And sort of using those and then processing the living crap out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was it. It was just like, it's like, it was like going on a safari and just hunting for strange bugs. You know, you're just like, what could this be? I don't know. And then you just record something. And you're like, I don't know what that's going to be. And oddly enough, it was, it was usually the stranger and more The more I thought oh this will never be usable that usually were the ones that were big winners they were like those are the stars of the show
0: Mm. would you do it again (laughs) hundred percent
1: well I do I try to work it into anywhere I possibly can Mm. Uh, I'm I'm like this could be a thing Um, and like (laughs) what what weird thing can I put in here because you know it's that's sort of the joy of it like that when you talk about happy accidents or like working with other people Um, you're looking for that. You're looking for something to go, oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And this process is, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get that moment as many, many times as you can, where you're like, whoa, that's neat. Like what, I didn't think that process would get me to this place. And then you get this whole new way of working. And a lot of those, you know, what's cool about it too, is that you discover these things that are uniquely yours, like the process that you do and then use it on other things. You may tame it down and not make it as crazy sounding, but it's still like, oh, this gets me a really cool result. And then of course the, I think one of the ultimate things is nobody else will have the sound that you have. Like when you Mm. put those things out, that's completely unique expression from top to tail um because you're not using anything that's a sampled library or anything that's a commercially available product.
0: All right. Cool. <laughs> um I have a couple questions from Patreon. I okay. put this out on there. Um so DJ asked how often do you find yourself completely scrapping something that you've started?
1: To be honest, not very often. Um you, okay, so the and the reason why is because of this process that I described earlier, where I'm just mm. so deep into the project that usually what comes out is somewhere in the ballpark. And then the, uh, the other time I might scrap something is if I've gone down a path that I thought was the right path, but it ends up not being the right path for the person who's a decision maker. Mm. And I might still think, oh, my way was a right way, but... It de- it really depends on whether, you know, they, they sort of, the saying goes, pick the mountain you want to die on, um, like pick your battles essentially. And oftentimes it's just like, I don't really, like I've learned to have a very um, kind of arm, arm's length uh, relationship with the music that I make and, and I try not to be precious about it. Uh and I'm really interested, very, very interested in learning why something doesn't work or why something else could work better. And then always I want to be better. So if someone says, well, it's nice, it's a good piece, but doesn't work for this scene, or we need to be saying something else, I'm like, great. Okay, so what do I need to do here? And I mean, almost, you know, ten out of ten times I'd say the piece is at least as good, if not better, than what I originally did. Mm -hmm. What I will say is I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat there going, what a piece of crap. I'm horrible at what I do. I should just quit. This is total junk. Like mm-hmm. you're sitting there and you're going, I can't, this is the best I can do. Like, oh my God, like I don't deserve to be doing this. Um, that kind of self doubt or uh, just feeling like it's so crap. You know, Mm -hmm. because you're so close to it and, you you know, you're trying to surprise yourself and you can't always do it. And you're comparing yourself to finished pieces that were in the temp or, you know, your heroes that you're looking up to that have made this incredible music. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, of course, what you're doing is just the it's the scratchy sort of. You know the attempt to assemble something of of some kind of gravity uh, that will hopefully attract other things and become something. But then you're looking at these finished planets and going, I'll never get there. So that happens all the time. What I've learned is um, you just have to push through. Um, There's a and and I guess on the other side, you have to also have a sense of like, is it not working because it's not. Finished, or it hasn't actually become what it needs to be yet? Mm. Or is it not working because the idea is actually wrong? Like, yeah. is it fighting against the screen? I mean, you know, I've gotten a lot better at being able to determine what tempo a scene should be. That's actually a really tricky thing to learn. And it, mm. I don't think it can be taught. I think it has to be felt. Mm. Um, like learning how to feel the pace of a scene and the edits and going how fast should the music be and knowing when you're actually either pushing too hard on the scene or you're dragging it back. So, you know, all that stuff notwithstanding, there's always that moment you're like, oh, I'm terrible. Like, this is awful and I should stop. Uh, And I found that most of the time you push through and eventually you get that something just gels. And you're like, you get it to a certain point and it looks like it doesn't just look like you threw a blanket on someone. It's starting to look like clothes that are being tailored. Uh, And it's less than just a sheet. And you go, okay, I can see the form now. I know where this is going. And then by the end of it, you're like, this is actually really great. I'm super happy with this. Um, so that's, that's really the answer to that. So I, I, I think that I would be scrapping a lot more if I didn't have that insight that I came to at some point where I'm like, you just got to push through.
0: Mm, Yeah. I remember seeing a a post on the creative process and it Mm -hmm. basically is like, Oh, you start with an idea, you start working on it. It's great. And then at some point you think this is shit. (laughs) And then eventually you get back to thinking this is awesome and it's like the final product.
1: And, yeah, that's yeah. called the, uh, there's this amazing thing. If you, uh, this is, I really recommend everyone look this up. It's called the emotional cycle of change. And uh, there's a great, there's all these great graphs that sort of show you what it is, but it's like the, you're sort of in a state of ignorance. You don't know what's coming. You're in total excitement and wonder at everything you're doing. And then you, get a bit of knowledge and you sort of see the mountain that you're trying to climb and then you start to collapse into the weight of all the stuff you don't know and how how you're not as good as you thought you were and you have so much to go and there's this dip it sort of goes below the baseline of happiness and you're like just in this miserably this valley of despair yeah. <laughs> and then you start to just push 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 and you get back up and then you get above the line again where like the ability that you have and what your vision was is starting to line up a bit more and you and you sort of get past that. Mm-hmm. And the really important thing, I think, for artists or creative people of any kind to keep in mind is that applies to career uh, just as much as it does the actual creative process. You're going to have... And this is going to repeat itself. It's not like it just happens once. You don't just Mm -hmm. get that dip at the beginning when you don't know anything and all of a sudden, oh my God, like being a composer really hard and this is really difficult and I'm not getting any gigs. It's been seven years. You know, you could be working at a career for seven years and going, I thought I'd be full time by now. Um, And, you know, then you pull yourself out of that and you slowly rise up to that sort of place where you can see the tip of the mountain. You know, you've got a lot, a long way to go, but you have a sense that it's possible you're going to get your butt kicked numerous times after that point again and again and again where you're thinking, oh my God, like I thought this, I I thought I'd be somewhere else or I thought I'd be solving these problems by now, or I didn't think this would happen, you know? And it's, that's just the way it is. This, this, Mm. this up and down sine wave of, uh, of, of going up and above and, and below that cycle. Uh, that's, that's just life. That's the way it is. And, and, there's a great quote. That's something like, uh, "The problem isn't that there are problems. The problem is thinking that having problems is a problem." <laughs> it's it's a, that's what we're doing here to do. We're here to solve our problems and like figure out how all this stuff works, and mm-hmm. that's part of it. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Another question from DJ is, "What instruments do you? What are all the instruments that you personally play, and which one's your favorite?" <laughs> And then is most of it virtually recreated via DAW, MIDI, or, and also like what plugins you use? That's oh, kind of Lord. sorry, that was like a lot.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah uh well plugins would take forever let's say okay um so instruments i play i my first instrument is a guitar so i've been playing for oh going on 30 years now um i play uh, keyboards and piano uh, i play drums and percussion i can sort of hack my way around some flute uh not silver <laughs> flute but like bansary flute like a wooden flute and simple flutes um what else can i play and just sort of odd assortments of weirdo instruments but uh, those are the main ones And yeah, so anything that isn't those is going to be virtual uh, for the most part, um, other than all the sound design-y weird stuff that I make. And in terms of like, uh, I think you you asked what uh, plugins do I use?
0: Yeah. Or like, maybe just what are your
1: go-tos? Ah, man, that's a good question. I mean... Cause it's you know it's such a personal thing. Like, how do you make a snare sound sound good? Or, you know, what do you use? I'll tell you one thing that I really like right now. A, a plugin that I'm really enjoying is called Grain Spacer, and it's a granular reverb and delay. And it just has uh, it's an inc- it's very inexpensive, like 40 bucks or 40 pounds, I guess, depending on where you get it. And it's it it just creates these incredible washes of a very interesting sound, and you can do sort of like. Um, Uh, pitched up sort of like these beautiful shimmering kind of crystalline kind of textures or big washy delays of oceanic sound um so that's that's a plugin i really enjoy right now what else do i use all the time i mean contact oh you know what another one i use all the time is iris uh by Mm Isotope, and that's a uh, it's a sampler that it's a granular sampling engine uh that works kind of like um you can put your own Uh, samples in it very easily and it's usually like one sample per or maybe three and then they're layered and for me that's my go-to for all like musical sound design because I find it super intuitive super fast it has a kind of graphical layout where it shows you what the waveform of the thing is and then you can kind of paint in where you want the frequencies to be and all sorts of weird stuff like that and then in terms of just building wild sounds from things you've recorded and doing it quickly uh that's that's my favorite one for sure
0: that sounds fun (laughs) Yeah, how often do you compose, just like for yourself?
1: Uh, not very. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, yeah. It's I, I. This is this is sort of I. I sort of just accept that this is the way I'm built. Um, <laughs> I need a project to work on, and it, it it it's very hard for me to get into something that's completely self-directed. I almost have to kind of trick myself into doing it. Um, I really like working with other people and solving problems. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't have this burning desire to like, do a project or like express myself and like get something out that's like an emotional like i don't like don't have that need to do that for me what i need to do is i need to talk to people i need to be in conversation i need to be solving problems in that way in in Mm -hmm. conversation most of what i do is like that's why i'm kind of purpose built for this job is is that so much of that is about somebody else's vision i'm coming in as a as a as a kind of mercenary problem solver who's got a very specific job to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just happiest when I'm doing that. Um, so every once in a while I'll be like, there are some backburnered, consistent sort of projects that I'm, I'm actually going to be working on a long form um, sort of symphonic piece in the summer, as well as uh, an album of uh, songs that I've been working on for a really long time. Cool. Um, because I recognize that I do need to, again, keep that kn- knife sharp. Again, going back to this idea of like finding your voice, it's pretty easy to get lost and to just be doing the jobs and not focus back um, Mm. on this idea of like, who are you? What is your, you know, what's the reason for you doing art and what is your voice as an artist? And that's something that has to be worked on. So whether I release those or not, or how I release them, um, it's it's more of a practice than it is about like an expression, I think. Mm.
0: Then what do you do outside of work?
1: What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Uh, well, <laughs> this is going to be a funny one. Actually, I, I haven't gamed in the longest time. And over the pandemic, I sort of was like, I need to do something else. Um, mm-hmm. so I got into sim racing actually. So I'm starting to like build a little sim rig and, and getting into racing, which has been super fun. Um, I don't know why that my brain is just super attracted to that kind of uh, focus. And I find it actually really good for my, for my brain. And it, it's so, uh, it requires so much focus that it makes, it, it prevents me from thinking about anything else. Yeah. What else do you, again, I'm, I want to get back into sort of visual art. I really like making videos actually. I was, um, for a while there for the last couple of years, I was making YouTube videos on a fairly regular basis and I really enjoyed doing it,
0: mm-hmm. but they
1: just, it takes a lot of time as you know, to yeah. uh, make visual content and to like, you know, to edit everything. It's super fun. I love it so much. Uh, right now I'm also working on a little mini documentary for my mom. Ooh. She's celebrating uh, 30 years of owning her bookstore in Edmonton. Oh, so I'm making congrats. a little like, yeah. So <laughs> I'm making a little 15 minute documentary and I'm absolutely loving that process. Like, I think it's so much fun creating meaning, like just, uh, you know, making meaning mm-hmm. out of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those, those are the big ones. I do a little bit of martial arts on this side. I used to be really into martial arts and I sort of just keep it up very, very um, in a very relaxed kind of uh, recreational fashion And uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, what do I do for fun? I mean, geez, (laughs) read, watch movies. It's kind of always working. It's, it's, I need to get more hobbies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, same. I don't really know where to draw the line between work and life balance right now.
1: (laughs) Well, that's one of the things about doing this as a profession is, well, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You really Mm. have to think and meditate and be very conscious about the approach right so especially when when you're not pro and you're doing it on a side i think that kind of like enthusiasm and passion and joy that you find in making music and creating stuff will carry you through and you don't really need to worry about it too much when you go pro and that's all you do for you know however many hours a day you have to do two things you have to stay in that um that mode of gratitude that my god i get to make a living doing music which is crazy um and also do things to make sure that you're like consciously in a state of like what am i learning how am i improving and what what is sort of keeping me engaged and interested in what i'm doing because it can like i've seen people who do it for a long time and they lose their passion for it because it becomes normal like anything else and it just becomes a job and that's Mm. really heartbreaking because I mean, I've been making music and creating music for almost, well, I'd say like 25, 30 years now. Uh, and I still find it just as fascinating and just as like perplexing. And I'm just uh, blown away by it and in complete wonderment and confusion as to how it works. Uh, sometimes, even when I'm writing and I go back to a piece that I'm like, what is going on? I don't understand how I did that. Um, and that's a beautiful place to be. And I think, you know, you have to maintain that spark. Uh, when you sort of make that switch, uh, that switch over. So the work life balance, you know, part of, <laughs> part of w- walking away and not doing it is so that you maintain that, right. You don't want to, um, have the brain only be in that one mode because otherwise it just becomes kind of normal and boring. And that's a, that's a, that'd be a very tragic thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cool to hear how curious you are about, about everything and like how, You love solving problems and all of that. (laughs) It makes everything really interesting. Keeps life interesting. Yeah, it absolutely does. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, we can wrap it up there. That's pretty much all I've got. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much again for hopping on my podcast.
1: (laughs) My pleasure. It was was really great to talk to you. Thanks for uh, inviting me.
0: Yeah. And where can people find you on the internet?
1: uh so i this decided about a year ago to get off of social media so while i didn't go full nuclear and delete all my social (laughs) media it's still there but it's not i'm not really updating it very often i don't look at it very much um just because it's a mental health thing i found uh, it Mm. was a really good thing to get off of it and not use it as much so um www.adrianelliscomposer.com is where my sort of base of operations is um i haven't made youtube videos but i've got about you know um, well, i don't know how many i don't want to say but i've got a few uh, vi- videos on my youtube channel um and i hope to be making more uh, i'd like to make more uh you can find my podcast at uh it's called the screen composer studio wherever you find podcasts and uh yeah if you want to check out the documentary it's called um the music of madness on itunes or not on iTunes. Well, it's on itunes too but it's amazon prime and tubi at this point
0: sweet All right. Well, thank you.
1: All right. Thank you.